When I was a kid, and this is true still today, but I, I remember distinctly when I was a kid how frustrated I was that I was born when I was born, and I wasn't born 2,000 years earlier to have seen Jesus. And as I was wearing out the pages on my children's Bible, I, I was frustrated with God because I said, God, I, I can read about this, but I just so badly wanted to be there. And I would, I would close my eyes and I would try to imagine whatever the scene was in the scripture that I was reading. And I would try to picture what Jesus looked like and what he might have sounded like as he was preaching, and of course, I wasn't thinking in, in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, but just what if he had spoken English? What would he have sounded like? And what would the weather have been like? And I would try to smell the grass. I would try to visualize the, the Sea of Galilee and feel the wetness, all by imagination. And I remember praying to God and saying, Lord, why didn't I live then? Anyone else ever had those frustrations? I mean, now I realize we are at such an advantage. Uh, living so much later, we have the Bible. We have God's finished word that, that God wrote it down, and we have it, and we can open it at any time that we want, and we can read it. And today, we're going to do something that is related to that early childhood frustration. I'm going to read for you a sermon that Jesus gave. And I am humbled. And I am honored that God would have called me to do this thing, to, to read to you the words of a sermon that Jesus gave. And we're going to do the whole sermon. And then we're going to reflect on Jesus' words I'm not going to add to them, but I hope that I will just shed some light on some aspects of his sermon just as a starting point for us, a starting point for you and your families to go home and, and to open up the book and, and to be filled with that holy frustration that, that you didn't hear Jesus say this sermon himself, and yet to thank God that he preserved this sermon, he recorded it down before there were recording instruments other than paper and pen and ink. So let's pray. As I pray, I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to take us back in time, to, to receive this sermon as if we were there. And very truly, I say that Jesus is here by his Holy Spirit. Heaven is open. He is fully aware of us. He knows us. He sees us. He's among his churches. And, and by his grace, he will preach this sermon to us today. Let's pray. Oh, God, we, we love you. and We long to see you. I confess, and perhaps there are others here who would join me, that, that there are times when I'm frustrated that I am separated by time and space from your earthly ministry. And yet I do rejoice that you have preserved everything that you wanted us to know about all things in your Bible. And you've, you've pre preserved four accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, each one showing us something a little bit different, a, a slight nuance to what Jesus came to accomplish. And, and you have preserved letters from your apostles and prophets, and you have even told us how this will all end. So we are at a great advantage. This morning as we read this sermon that was originally preached by Jesus, I plead with you, by your Holy Spirit to help us to receive these words as Jesus preaching to us. And I am humbled, God, to be the messenger, the mouthpiece, the speaker through which this will happen. But I pray that much more than me, your Holy Spirit would take the words of Christ and deliver them to each of us according to our unique 
needs. Build up this church, O oh God. Glorify yourself in this church. Send us out into the world that we might gather people into this church, which is your church. And then, by your grace, empower us to make disciples, teaching one another to obey every word. Pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6? We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 17. And as you're finding your spot, would you please stand? Jesus has just called to himself 12 apostles among the hundreds of disciples that were following him around. In so doing, he was creating a, a new kind of kingdom that is modeled on the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where we pick up in verse 17. This is the word of God, slight introduction, and then the very words of Jesus Christ. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and even the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, and all who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, this great multitude gathered together, more than the 12 apostles. And Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. For you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to all the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation, and woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry, and woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and then your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. 
For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, that you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of his good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, a stream broke against the house, and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. These are the words of Jesus Christ. He has preached already to us this morning. You may be seated. I want to uh, just entreat the Lord by prayer one more time as we take a look at this sermon. Lord Jesus, these are your words that you preached so many years ago and you're preaching them to us today. Oh God, help us to have ears to hear. Help us to have soft hearts and open minds. And would your Holy Spirit do a surgery in each one of us. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Last week we took a look at at what Jesus was doing. He came after he was baptized to inaugurate his earthly ministry. and, And he established a new kind of kingdom with himself at the center. He succeeded where Israel had failed and yet he was rejected. He was rejected by his own hometown. He was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. So he went out and he gathered in the people that that the religious leaders in the mainstream had rejected. And his ministry consisted of teaching and casting out demons and healing the sick. And we see here in the introduction here a summary of what we looked at last week. We're going to look at that summary, but first we divide this sermon into four points. I believe that what Jesus did so many years ago is he, he preached a four-point sermon. And, and what he's saying is, as I'm building this new kind of kingdom... These are the ethics that I want the people that I fill my new kind of kingdom with to live by. These are the kind of people that are welcome into my kingdom. And as I call you into my kingdom, and as I heal you of all kinds of diseases, as I protect you from the demonic forces, as I teach you about the truth, this is how I want you increasingly to live. And so it's instructive for us, right? Because we, we profess to belong to Christ's kingdom in this church, and we at Social want to be this kind of people. So the four-point sermon goes like this. New kingdom people 
prioritize eternal blessings over temporal blessings. New kingdom people, number two, seek the good of others no matter what. Number three, new kingdom people do not judge one another harshly, but speak the truth in love. And number four, new kingdom people desire to obey Jesus Christ. That's the sermon. That's what Jesus is is communicating to us, and we're going to take a look at the way in which he has said that to us. If you look at the introduction, verses 17 to 18, though, I just want to point out a couple of things. Jesus came down and stood with them on a level place after he had called his 12 apostles. He had a great multitude around him. Now, who made up this multitude? Uh, And we see here already the kind of people that are welcome into Jesus' new kind of kingdom. Well, there are people from all over Judea. So we know that Jews are welcome into Jesus' kingdom. There are people from Jerusalem, so Judea and Jerusalem, Jews. But there were also people from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. This would probably be predominantly Gentiles who had heard about what Jesus were, was doing, and they were drawn to him. So even at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he's saying, look, Jesus' new kind of kingdom is being opened up not just to Jews, but to Gentiles also. And then we see again what I have already mentioned. He came, they came to hear him to be healed of their diseases, to be healed of their unclean spirits, that is, the demons were cast out. They wanted to see this power. And so Jesus demonstrates his power by doing those things, but then also by teaching. And we're going to look at predominantly his teaching, those four points that we went over already. So number one, the new kind of kingdom is filled with people who prioritize eternal blessings over temporal blessings. I'm going to read these six verses again from verse 20 to 26. But first, what I want us to look for as I read this, this whole section is about perspective. It's about keeping the right perspective. It's about, it's about prioritizing the eternal rather than the temporal. And that's so hard day to day, isn't it? It's so hard to remember that that this life is fleeting, that that we can know that intellectually, but in the day, in the morning when you get up and you think about all that you need to do that day, when you think about all of the the difficulties that you might have at work or at school or, or relationally in your family, or you might think about your finances and think, well, I don't have enough. So hard to remember that we need to always prioritize the eternal, the promises of God, what God has said he has done and will do for us, not just in this life, but in the life to come. It means that we need to forego immediate gratification for eternal gratification. Uh, We need to delay our wants. We can't have all that we want right now. But God has promised that he will not just provide what we need, but more than we could ever hope for, more than we could ever imagine, he is going to give us plenty overflowing in the age to come. What I love about Luke, perhaps more than the other gospel writers, is that Luke is not saying you have to choose between the material and the spiritual. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to choose between the material now and the material later. And there's this, there's a substance to eternality, okay? We're not going to be ethereal spirits sort of floating around with nothingness in the age to come. There's a a real substantial kingdom to come in all of its fullness. And the eternal realm is not stripping away what we know, but adding to, always adding to. And so so what Luke says is, he doesn't say uh, poor in spirit the way that Matthew does when he records the Sermon on the Mount. He says, he just says, if you're poor now, now you won't be poor later. He's talking about material riches. 
He's talking about physical hunger. You don't know if you have enough even to feed yourself today. Well, the new age begins with a feast, a banquet. You see it in Isaiah 25. You see it in Revelation 19. A feast. Not, not just sort of a, a hypothetical, metaphorical feast where we just sort of float around and we think about good things, but God is going to give us the fatty parts of good meat and well-aged wine. And we're going to eat. And we're going to eat. And we're going to eat. Not because we need to eat in order to exist in physical bodies, but our resurrected bodies are going to be raised up physically with, with greater substance than we have now. Our bodies will be heavier. If you're 200 pounds now, you're going to be 2,000 pounds or something like that in the age to come because your, your physicality is going to have so much substance. So it's not about material now versus spiritual now. It's about material now versus material later. This is where the prosperity gospel gets it all wrong. There's a hint of truth to the prosperity gospel. Now, before, I, I'm dead opposed to the prosperity gospel. So don't stone me just yet. But they do something right, which is they talk about God's desire to bless us materially. The problem is they want it now. And God never promises to bless us materially now. But he is going to display the immeasurable richness of his kindness in the age to come with material blessings that we cannot even fathom. And it won't be a system like the system we have now with all this private property where we hoard things for ourselves and lord it over other people. That's not the kind of material blessing that God is going to give us. But he is going to give us a resurrected universe, a new heavens and a new earth that has physical, substantial reality, and it's all going to be ours. So, so this first part of Luke's, of Luke's uh, recounting of Jesus' sermon is that new kingdom people prioritize eternal blessings over temporal blessings. It's like asking a child, do you want one cookie now or five cookies tomorrow? Most children will take one cookie now. Let us not be like that. You cannot have your best life now unless you're not saved. If you're not saved, then this is your best life now, and then you will be judged and condemned, and everything will be taken away from you. But for those of us in Christ, our best life is not now but we store up riches in heaven. Everything that Jesus says in his sermon here is directed to his disciples. It's directed only to those who are in Christ. It, these things can only be true for, for Christians, for followers of Jesus. And what Jesus says is this, uh, temporal poverty is temporary. I mean, the two words go together. Temporal poverty, temporal, temporary. It's for a time. But the immeasurable riches of God are given to those who will be in his kingdom. Temporal hunger will not last. God has promised great feasting to inaugurate the fullness of his kingdom. Sadness and grief will fade away for true disciples of Jesus Christ. God has promised laughter. God has promised eternal joy as part of what it means to live forever with him. Eternal life is about joy welling up inside and overflowing. And the fountainhood of all joy, or the fountainhead of all joy is, is God himself. And we will be in fellowship with God, not, not by faith, but face to face. And we will, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, we will drink from the fountain of joy directly forever and ever. And there will be nothing obstructing the eternal joy that wells up from within the Godhead himself. And that will flow in us and through us and for us. So, so sadness and grief that is very real today will not last. 
So if you're grieving today, know that it is for a time. Persecution on account of Jesus Christ is for a time. Because you know what? Everyone in his kingdom loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us will gather together and, and nobody will be persecuting us on account of Christ. But we will seek to outdo one another in showing honor and glory and worship to Jesus Christ. There will be no naysayers. There will be no scoffers. There will be no one who wants to ridicule or humiliate or, or abuse or inflict physical damage on us or kill us because of Jesus Christ. So persecution, no matter how slight or how severe, is temporary. The worst that anyone can do for us is kill us, and then we go with people who love Jesus Christ, and we see Jesus face to face, and Jesus shows us the Father, and the whole heavens are filled with his spirit, and then we wait for the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. And then we watch them recreate the universe. So do your worst. Kill me. And I will be glad in the presence of Christ. See, New Kingdom people prioritize eternal blessing over temporal blessing. They say, this world is not true reality. There's so much of Satan's deceit, so much illusion, so much that is false. Jesus then, though, after comforting his true disciples, he goes and he, he, he knows in a crowd that size there's going to be counterfeit believers, as there may be here today. He says, listen, those of you who pursue money instead of God, you'll be eternally bankrupt. God will take everything from you. You can't take your riches with you. We came into the world with nothing. We'll leave the world with nothing. All we have is what Christ gives us. And if we don't seek Christ, if we don't receive Christ, he'll take everything from us and he will banish us. He says, those of you who prioritize full bellies over all else, you who are, are more interested in physical comforts now, you'll be eternally famished. You'll be eternally discomforted. You'll never be full again. Jesus says, if you laugh now, now is he against laughing and joy and Joie de vivre, absolutely not. He's saying those of you who laugh, it's the kind of laughter that scoffs at the truth. It's the kind of laughter that says that the world is as it should be and I'm living large and I'm loving it and I'm taking every from, everything from the world that I can now. It's that kind of laughter. It says, woe to you because you will weep when this world is taken from you. I mean, the world is divided into two kinds of people. When this world is taken from you, do you rejoice? Or do you weep? Finally, he says, look, man's favor is meaningless. If, if you are living your life to please others, to be held in high esteem by others, if you worry not about your esteem before God, then you are an enemy of God, and he will treat you that way. And at the end, he will condemn you, and you'll be banished from him, and you'll, he will say, away from me, I never knew you. So we have to keep the right perspective. Life is short. Even the longest life is short. Keep the right perspective. Store up riches in heaven. Prioritize eternal things. Give priority to God not to this world. Let's take a look at the way that Jesus said this. Point number one of Jesus' sermon, new kingdom people prioritize the eternal, not the temporal. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. 
For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. For me, one of the hardest things is woe to you who are rich. Because by worldly standards over all time, we're rich. All of us are rich. The point is not how big is your bank account, but where is the allegiance of your heart? Where is the allegiance of your heart? What is the number one priority in your life? To make money or to contribute to the building of Christ's kingdom on earth? Choose one or the other. Be blessed or receive the woes of Jesus Christ. Point number two, new kingdom people seek the good of others no matter what. New kingdom people seek the good of others. What kind of others? All others. No matter what. You see, fallen humanity builds relationship based on self-interest. And this is how the world loves. I will love you if you love me. I will love you if you protect me. I will love you if you pay me. I will love you if you entertain me. Isn't that true in our culture? I will love you if you are of some benefit to me. This is, this is what the world calls love. This is why so many marriages are in big trouble. Because a, a marriage built on that kind of love, by, by definition, cannot last. Because a partner cannot always be of benefit. There are going to be times, sometimes more often than not, when, when you're the one that has to give. You have to give and give and give, and it seems like you're doing all of the giving. And if your notion of love, if your commitment to the marriage, or any other relationship for that matter, let's take your relationship to the church, or to Jesus Christ. If your mentality of love is, I will love, I will invest, I will commit, I will persevere, so long as I can de- derive some benefit for myself, That's not a new kingdom kind of love. That's a worldly, sinful love. Followers of Christ are called to a higher love. We are not to consume one another. That's literally what we do under that old old definition of love. We consume one another like products. We say, I'm going to invest in you so long as it's good for me, so long as it's pleasurable for me, so long as I'm enjoying it, so long as there's something that I get from it. But once there's no benefit to me, I will discard you. That's the way the world loves. Followers of Christ are called to a higher kind of love. Uh, This is what new kingdom people love like. They say, I will love you even when you don't love me. Can we love non-Christians? Can we love murderers and pedophiles? I will love you even when you don't love me. I will love you even when you don't protect me. I will love you even when you don't pay me. I will love you even when you don't pay me back. I will love you when you don't entertain me. I will love you even if you don't benefit me at all. 
In fact, Jesus goes further. I mean, he's not done. Jesus goes further. He says, in fact, this is how I want the people in my kingdom to love. When you hate me, when, when you physically take steps to demonstrate to me and to the world that you hate me, I will love you. When you put my life in danger, I will still love you. When you curse me, when you ridicule me, when you tear me down, when you slander against me, when you gossip about me, when you misrepresent me, I will pray that God might bless you. When you abuse me, physically, sexually, verbally, spiritually, I will not, because I love you, I will not permit you to continue to abuse me. I will not allow you to continue to sin in that way against me, but I will have compassion on you. I will plead with God to help you. I will pray for you and ask God to change you. When you slap me on one cheek, I will give you my other cheek. That is not about permitting physical abuse. That is about not trying to get even. It's against this idea that you slap me, I slap you, now we're even. He says, I'm not going to try to get even. I'm not going to play that game. We're not going to, you do this and I do that. You do this and I do that. I'm going to stop that cycle because I'm not going to try to get even. I'm going to absorb it. I'm not going to permit continual abuse, but I'm going to absorb what has happened to this point, and I'm not going to retaliate. When you insult me, I will not insult you back. When you take what belongs to me, I'll just let you have it. I will treat you exactly how I would like you to treat me, even when you're not treating me that way. It's hard. Anyone think this is hard? This is not possible for sinful men and women to do. It's not possible. The only way to even step into this kind of love is that God has changed us, the very center of who we are. He has, he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit and he empowers us by his grace to love this way. And we can only love this way when we trust that God will make all things right in the end. You have to have an eternal perspective to love this way. Thus, when we trust that God will bring justice to this world, then we are free to live a life based on mercy and grace. So we're not saying that God is not just and he's asking us not to live just lives because make no mistake, this way of living, this way of loving, it's not justice. This is not a way to live fair. We forego our right for fairness and justice in a way where we love one another because we trust that God is just and he will bring justice. So we make no mistake, justice will be done. Everyone will be judged. God will make all things right. And because we believe this at the very center of who we are in every fiber of our being, we do not need to demand our rights in the here and now. God will take care of that. In a world that is all about my right, this is a very hard way to live. Let's take a look at the way in which Jesus worded this second part of his sermon. Verse 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. 
And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Do you see that Jesus is calling us to go beyond justice? Justice would say that you have a right to demand your property back. Justice would say you slap back, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You see that? Your reward will be great. God keeps track. God will make everything right. God will bring justice. He, he will fill up that which we don't fill up ourselves in this life. When, when we refuse to seek our rights, God will more than fill that up and give back to us. More than that, he will call us sons of the Most High. Notice this. We're following God's example. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. There's common grace in the world where God is just being so patient and generous with sinners and evil people, people who don't thank him. So be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Do you know if God gave us what we deserve, we would find ourselves in hell. Just as God has saved us and extended this unspeakable kindness to us by taking us from hell and promising us the richness of his kingdom, likewise we are ex liberated to extend mercy and love and grace to those who do not deserve it because we have received love and grace and mercy. What we have received from God, may it overflow us to others. God will bring perfect justice in the end. We can trust him for that. When you are in the right and you don't, do not demand your rights, you will be proved right at the end. Point number three. New kingdom people do not judge one another harshly, but speak the truth in love. This, this is often misunderstood, or it's at least misused by Christians. What does Jesus mean when he says, judge not and you will not be judged? What does Jesus mean when he says, condemn not and you will not be condemned? Is Jesus promoting licentiousness? I mean, if you follow that logically, the way it's often used, we're not allowed to judge anyone. Therefore, if you see someone in blatant sin, oh, don't talk about it. Don't confront them on it because, because that would be judgmental. Is that what Jesus means? He says, I'm gathering together a group of people where you can't actually speak the truth to one another. You can't call people out for their sins because that would be judgmental. So I just want a bunch of, of people who call themselves by my name sinning in all kinds of ways with no check, no balance, no discipline. Is that what Jesus means? Is he encouraging a lack of discernment? Oh, you can't judge my doctrinal beliefs because that, that would be judgmental. So is he saying that we can just all join together in the church and every, every opinion is equal, that we don't need to discern the truth from the false? Is he empowering sinners and abusers? Are, do we not have the right to go to, to a husband who is physically abusive to his wife and tell him that that's wrong? Can he then come to us and say that you're being judgmental? Is Jesus promoting lawlessness in the family, lawlessness in the church, lawlessness in society? Is Jesus taking away all of the tools of church discipline from the leaders in the church? See how this gets misused, right? And usually it's on smaller things. Oh, don't talk to me about that. That's judgmental. 
You're condemning me, so now you're going to be condemned? That's, that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Clearly, Jesus is not saying that he's gathering together a group of people that have no knowledge of right and wrong, where any behavior is acceptable. It's not what he's saying at all. Jesus is addressing pettiness. I'm superior to you. He's addressing hypocrisy. Where one of us can go around and speak against all of our sin, and yet in private he does the same things. Jesus is preaching against self-righteousness. He's preaching against unforgiveness. Is there any unforgivable sin? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what's that? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is saying that Jesus is filled with Satan. That, that's the only unforgivable sin. And if you say that, if you repent of that, I imagine you're, you're forgiven. But so long as you say that Jesus is filled with Beelzebub, well, you're not, among, you're not one of his children. Jesus is preaching against a lack of self-awareness. He wants us to know that we're all sinners. We're, we're all in this together. As a part of God's justice, Jesus says he will treat us with the same scrutiny that we treat one another. Therefore, if you want mercy from God, if you want grace from God, then extend mercy and grace to others in the church and outside of the church. And the more you give mercy and grace to others, the more you will receive it from God. Let's take a look at the way that Jesus says this, verses 37 and 38. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I fear for the church. I fear that as we, as, as one group, stands before Jesus Christ, he will hold us accountable for all of the people that we kept out of the church. Remember what I said, I'm not saying that we invite people in without transformation, without repentance, without, without uh, profession of faith, without a real desire to obey Christ. But what do we expect of lost sinners while they're lost sinners? Jesus illustrates what he means by all of this with, a par with two proverbs and a parable. Let's look at them quickly. Verse 39. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Well, obviously, you need, a, you need somebody who can see to lead someone who can't see. Now, what Jesus initially is saying, look, you're, you're all blind, at least in part, at least before you came, you're, you're all equal. You're all in the same situation. All of you have sin. Before you were saved, you, you had nothing but sin. Now you're all still struggling with sin. So when finding legitimate fault with one another, we must admit that altogether we are a sorry lot. That's not the same thing as saying that, that we're wretched sinners, that there's nothing good in us. I mean, if we're saved, the Holy Spirit is in us. But we have to at least admit to the battle that wages inside of us between that which we want to do and that which we find we're still desiring to do, the sin in our flesh. It's no good for me to be blind in my own sinfulness and my own shortcomings when pointing out to you your sinfulness and your shortcomings. Now, this does not mean that I need to, before I can address anything in your life, I need to come and confess to you all of my sin. It's not what this is saying. However, knowing full well that I struggle myself, my approach to you ought to be genuinely softened with compassion, 
with gentleness, with empathy. Look, we're all struggling. So would this be a church where we say, look, I'm not coming to condemn you, but I see something in your life. I struggle too. I want to work with you on this. That's what Jesus is talking about. Second Proverbs that he gives is in uh, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. He's calling us to look to the teacher. Rather than being like blind men leading blind men, let us go to one another and direct our gaze to Jesus Christ. And together, as we're pointing out shortcomings and sin and, and failures in one another's lives. We say, look, we're in this together, but together, let's look to the teacher. And then we together will grow to be like him. We won't be above him, but we'll become like him. As co-disciples, we can point one another to Jesus' examples rather than our own. And then finally, this very famous parable. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now this is not saying that we have to be without sin before we can speak the truth in love to one another. But it is calling for very careful self-inspection. Jesus is asking us to be self-aware. Know who you are. Know where your weaknesses are. Know, know where your sinful tendencies are. And, and probably you're not the one to go and address that in someone else unless it is to say, I am struggling as you are struggling. And if that's our approach, then we've taken the log out of our eye. We're, we're not blind to ourselves. We're saying, look, I, I've, I've got this problem too. Uh, even better, if, if we are not struggling in that area, we can very honestly say, look, I don't struggle in that area, though I struggle in these other areas, but I want to help you in the area that you struggle because where you're weak, I'm strong. And I, I can give you some pointers. I can help you. I can pray for you. I can encourage you. Either way, the call is not to be blind to one another's needs, but to be aware of our own issues and then do speak the truth in love. And I have found a principle in ministry that is very true and very effective. It is better for one to speak into another's life if they have already struggled with that sin. It's especially powerful if they have experienced some recovery, some victory in that area. Now, I have to be careful not to fall back into that sin. But it's powerful when former alcoholics come alongside current alcoholics. All the judgmentalism falls away. Look, I, I was like you. I did that. I was that. I was you. It's powerful with those who have overcome pornography to come alongside others who are struggling with internet lust and say, look, I, I don't condemn you. I know that this is a terrible trap to fall into. I have, by the grace of God, come out of that. Now let me walk with you. Let me help you because you're poisoning your marriage bed and you're defiling the church. And you're bringing, bringing disrespute onto the name of Jesus Christ and he sees what you do in secret. But I was there. See, that's so much more powerful than you shouldn't be doing that. What good is that? It's wonderful when a recovered swindler or gambler can speak into the life of a cheat or somebody who's caught up in online poker or the slots or whatever else. I mean, pick your sin. Where have you sinned? What, what victory has God put in your life? Will you be honest about it? Will you be vulnerable? Will you be transparent? Will you go out and look for people who are struggling in that area and, and put the proper protections on yourself so you don't fall back into your former way of life? But will you go and help others? 
That's what Jesus is saying here. When he says, judge not that you be not judged. He's not saying that we don't help one another. We don't identify sin or that we don't identify false doctrine. Of course we do, but we do it the right way. So just before I move on to the fourth point, therefore let us not use this verse to insulate ourselves from the church, from Jesus Christ. You can't judge me. You can't condemn me. You can't talk about my doctrine. If you're using this verse, then you're doing what Satan does with Scripture. Twisting it to your own perverted advantage. That's not okay. Well, moving on to number four. New kingdom people desi- uh, desire to obey Jesus Christ. This kind of catches everything together. New kingdom people, their deepest, most real desire is to obey Jesus Christ so that when they don't obey Jesus Christ, they grieve, they mourn, they confess. Every church has false converts. I, I would be absolutely floored and shocked if that's not true here. We would be an exceptional group of people. So we have to, for the sake of those people who might be in a false conversion, we need some way of helping one another to discern. Are are we in the new kind of kingdom or are we not? Do we belong to Christ or don't we? There's no use thinking that you belong to Christ just to face him at the end of the age and and for him to say, depart from me, I never knew you. So how, how do we tell? Well, Jesus says true Christians are like good trees. Good trees bear good fruit. So we ought to see good fruit. What's good fruit? Well, let's start with the fruit of the Spirit. It's the same biblical word. Love. As Jesus described it, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All right. Is that fruit growing in your life? Good doctrine is good fruit. A changing life is demonstration of good good fruit. How have you changed in the last year? Are you the same person that you were a year ago? Well, that's reason for concern if you are, if, if you haven't changed. What about five years ago? Are you, are you a different person now than five years ago? What about 10 years ago? What if you haven't changed in 30 years? You keep coming to church, but you haven't changed. This, this harvest of good fruit is not that, that we'd be able to become works-based legalists. It's about looking for increasing bounty season after season, year after year. The first harvest might just be the smallest, most despicable little fruit. Ah, I just don't even want to pick it and eat it. It's sort of, I think it's there, but it's not that appealing. That's something. But then what's the next season's harvest look like? Just, you know, a little, some low-hanging fruit. Then just increasingly more and more. Where is the Lord working on your life right now? Do you know? What, what is the thing where God has said, we got to deal with this? And it could be anything. It could be something that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. It could be something that you're not doing that you ought to be doing. What is the thing that that you are committing to in partnership with, with God through the Holy Spirit by the power of his grace to produce fruit in that area? 
I mean, if you don't know what that is, then you need to get before God and say, Lord, what is it? What is that thing that I need to work on right now? That's the kind of fruit that we're looking for. We're not looking for perfect people. We're not looking for people that never fail. We're not looking for people that never sin. We're looking for people that, that have a, a desire to produce good fruit, and they're seeking God and his power to do so. Jesus says that you can tell good fruit from what comes out from a person's lips. What do they say? What are the words that they say? What if, what if we put a tape recorder around each of our necks for a week? Then we just played them for one another. Scary. But it shouldn't be. True Christians, Jesus says, are like a man who builds his house on a solid foundation. That is, they, they seek out, what has Jesus said and how do I make that real in my life? That's the foundation. The word of God is the foundation. If you're building your life on anything but the word of God, when the storm comes, your, your house will fall over. How much time are you spending in the word of God? So Christianity is not easy believism. It's not name the word, the name of Christ and be saved. Salvation is not about cheap grace. Jesus Christ has bought us with the price. It's the precious blood of God. Grace that's given to us is, is glorious and it's free. It's a gift from God. We can't earn it. We can't do anything good enough to deserve it. Uh, but it's, once it's given to us, grace has to go to work. Grace is God's divine power over past sin. Every sin that you have ever done is forgiven, washed away, cleansed. It hangs over you no more. You will not be condemned. And every sin in the future, same thing. But grace is more than forgiveness. It's divine power to overcome sinful impulses. We are freed from our slave master, which is sin and the devil, so that we can obey Christ with glad hearts. And the only way that that's possible is the grace of God. So put grace to work. Jesus says, no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. Grapes are not picked from a bram bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. When you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit circumcises your heart, nails your sin to the cross, regenerates your heart, gives you a new nature, a heart that desires to obey Jesus Christ. So if you have been saved, you will produce good fruit. This is not a works-based gospel. This is evidence of a true salvation. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? As somebody who's been transformed from the heart will desire to do what Jesus wants them to do. It's evidence, not works-based. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, or desires to do them, I would insert, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug a deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And the flood arose, the streams broke against that house. Floods could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, the person who comes to church every week, hears the preach of the word, never opens the Bible between Sundays, and never makes any effort to put into practice the things that he or she has heard, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Jesus, in summary, is building a new kind of kingdom. And it's filled with all the outcasts and sinners. Not the self-righteous, not, not those who, who are endeavoring to please God by their good works. But people who, who have a, an awareness of who they are before God and say, Lord, I, I, I fall short. Spiritual lepers, spiritual paralytics, sick people, 
that he calls all of us together and he heals us. He removes our leprosy. He removes our paralysis. He empowers us with a new heart to do the things that he wants us to do. And when he gives us a new heart, this ought to resonate. If this is not resonating, then then get before the Lord and make yourself right with him. Because new kingdom people will prioritize eternal blessings over material blessings. New kingdom people will seek the good of others no matter what. New kingdom people will not judge one another harshly, but we will speak the truth in love. New kingdom people desire to obey Jesus Christ. Will we do all of these things perfectly? No. No, never. Not before we die and are raised from the dead. But we ought to be growing in these areas, and that's the evidence that we are new kingdom people. I pray that Soshore would be a new kingdom church that we would fill this place with lepers, paralytics. Christ would heal them, make them new kingdom people. Let's pray. God, we want you to transform lives. Protect us from legalism. And yet give us a desire to do the things that you want us to do. Give us the right perspective. Help us to love the way you loved us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to bear good fruit. We can't do this in our own strength, but when you take up residence in us, when your spirit dwells in us, when you give us a new heart, we know that increasingly we will bear fruit. We thank you that you deserve and receive all the glory for this fruit, not us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our King.